and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Monday morning, June 26, 2023. We are on a Monday morning subject, the environment, how to quantify not just the environment, but how we're going to save it, how to make sense of it in economic, in uh, mathematical, algorithmic terms. For some, that's not possible. We've had many guests suggesting that if we're going to be good ancestors, like Roman Krasnarich, who has an interesting new book out, The Good Ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking, Krasnarich didn't believe that we can price the priceless, quantify, if you like, the unquantifiable. But my guest today on the show is an economist, and I think she has a quite different take on how to be a good ancestor. She has a new book out, Pricing the Priceless, The Financial Transformation to Value the Planet, Solve the Climate Crisis, and Promote Our Most Precious Assets. Her name is Paula DePerna, and he, she is joining us from... Uh, Cooperstown um, in uh, upstate New York. Uh, Paula, how would you respond to people who would suggest that you're part of the problem? The idea of valuing the planet in economic terms is, is simply an absurdity. Well, I guess it's always uh, good to be somebody's target in a sense. It means they're paying attention. But, you know, we've done the experiment of not valuing the planet for the last hundred years. So I feel in a sense, we should give it a try. And I, I understand that there's a metaphysical resistance, but and it's a pure paradox. You cannot price what's priceless, obviously, by definition. But if you don't try and you don't approach it, you get what we have, which is waste and abuse and lamentable. Uh, what Parta Dasgupta, a very important economist, says is uh, basically just the same as depreciation. So somewhere between stopping depreciation and becoming, you know, married to the counting house, we have to find the answer. So how would you respond? And I, and I don't want to put words into Roman Krasnarich's uh, math. In fact, uh, his wife wrote uh, Donut Economics. So she's very influential in this field, too. Is being a good ancestor being able to quantify how we leave the earth, Paula? Absolutely true. Yes. Intergenerational equity and intergenerational responsibility is perhaps our greatest responsibility. But by the same token, maybe the hang up is quantify in the word quantify, because you, you, you can put certain numbers, you know, for example, you know, we know that that uh, that uh, uh, swamps filter filter water. And you could you can measure how much water goes through there and what the price of that water is and what the cost of cleaning uh, up the water would be. You know, you can get numbers onto these intangibles, but the metaphysical is, so what? Is that enough? Does that enough? Is that enough to engender um, uh, belief in protecting that water? Or is it just a, a simplified accounting measure to show you how far you can go before you have your broke? So I think the hang up is in what is quantification. And what I was trying to get it in pricing is we do have to, in my book, we have to really raise our tolerance for ambiguity that being said, there's a very sophisticated science that's been evolving for decades uh, on measuring what are called ecosystem services. And if you think about equity, you know, the nature is the most tragically underpaid worker in the history of the human uh, in the history of the world, i.e. never been paid and still not being paid for all the work it does. 
Yes, that's a fascinating idea that we should be paying nature. Tell me a little bit about yourself. You were known as the president of the Joyce Foundation, which is a a, a pretty uh, powerful uh, foundation for for giving out money. You're now involved with the CDP uh, as a special advisor. Tell me a little bit about your background, Paula. Are you trained as an economist? Right, and I'm not really formally an economist. Uh, I must uh, I must correct that. But um, so you know, I was born in New York City. Um, I went to public schools. I had almost no interest in environmental issues per se. You know, I I, I often say I thought Pete Moss was a person who lived down the road, Mr. Moss, and um, a you know, drummer did, for a band, right? Sorry, or yeah, right, exactly. And uh, but I did want to be a writer. I've always wanted to to write, and uh, was encouraged in school and high school. Went on to college, was teaching reading in uh, East Harlem in New York City, and um, you know, sold my first article to the Village Voice about some contradictions that were going on in this alternative high school that I uh, had been teaching in, and I volunteered to work for Jacques Cousteau the famous French oceanographer and underwater pioneer, basically put underwater filming on the map, as it were, for the general public. And I didn't do that because I was so interested in environment. I did that because I wanted to learn about some new topics that I could freelance and write about. But um, stars lined up, and uh, the next day after I volunteered, they offered me a full-time job as a writer on a book that uh, the Cousteau Society was publishing called The Cousteau Almanac, which foresaw many, many of the environmental problems we're talking about today. And um, I ended up staying there for 20 years. So that was a turning point in my life and uh, enabled me to do almost everything since uh, because I became Cousteau's uh, chief uh, right-hand policy person and uh, he could access anybody. So had tremendous access. And then I worked on a lot of films as producer and a writer. So that all kind of came together. What about... um... The, the Joyce Foundation, your work for that. And the reason I'm asking is I'm curious how these organizations quantify or don't quantify how they decide to give who money to and how much money to give. Is this one of the areas that you began to uh, develop your theory of pricing the prices? Well, that's interesting because, you know, philanthropy is about securing intangible values. I didn't per se think about pricing the priceless at that time, but I did. I did um, uh, uh, jump on an opportunity. I mean, one thing philanthropy has is opportunity. They're one of the few institutions in the world that have money when they have the opportunity. Most people have either opportunity and no money or money and no opportunity. They have both. And it was the millennium, the new millennium, and we, uh, we, uh, our board agreed to create a, a couple of special grants to exactly um, uh, represent intergenerational questions and, and fund and support uh, efforts that would have intergenerational significance. And so we did seed um, the design of something that became the Chicago Climate Exchange, which was the world's first carbon market and cap and trade system and really was a milestone. So in that sense, the Joyce Foundation was critical, uh, not only to you know my stepping into this field, but also the field in general. I mean, they should be congratulated on that initial grant. That was very farsighted. The book has been embraced by my old friend, Martin Wolf, uh, one of the world's leading financial journalists, economists. He selected it as 
one of his best mid-year um, reads. He says, prices play an indispensable role in guiding any complex and decentralized economy. But how can they work if the most valuable things of all the atmosphere, oceans and wildlife that protect, feed and delight us remain unpriced? This is the challenge addressed in De Perna's book. So how do you how do you price the atmosphere, oceans and wildlife, particularly if they don't have any concrete value to us? Mm. Well, you know, how do we price Uber? or things that are dispensable. We figure out some way of valuing them and we can live without them, but Uber's worth the bill in the billions and the atmosphere is worth zero and we can't live without it. So first it's a cosmic question. You kind of have to flip your thinking. Uh, then you, you know, finance is really- well, Hold on, but, 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 but I don't get that. So we had um, Christian Cooper on the show last week, the New right. York, uh, the the- uh, the uh, the ornithologist who got involved in a huge controversy has a new book out on bird watching. Right, a lot of the birds don't have any concrete value to human beings. How do you how do you quantify species? What happens if a bird uh, a bird species is destroyed and we don't eat it? Then it doesn't have any value. Well, if you want to stick to the specifics of a species. Okay. So we, you know, eating it has a value. It's the food you don't have to buy. If you eat the bird, uh, that's at least a number. Um, you, money you would have spent on food if you're hunting and eating the birds is at least what it's worth. But when you think about, for example, in the Amazon, all birds that eat bee, uh, uh, berries, when they defecate, as it were, they transmit those berries all through the system. And so they're functioning, they're working. And that value trans is immediately transferred to, into the rainforest. So then you have the birds tying it into the value of the rainforest. And I guess what, what I'm saying is we're not pricing per se the species, but we're, we're pricing the benefits that they contribute to and or the, um, the uh, uh, interactions that they, that they catalyze. So I noticed that I heard the interview with Christian and he, he was really very articulate as was um, the photographer, Roger Balin. And right. I, can give you, I can give you an example. So in Africa, for example, the rhino bond, which is a new creation and I would argue is pricing the priceless. Now, what is the pricelessness it's pricing? It's pricing the biodiversity uh, presence of the white rhino uh, it's pricing at least the tourism economy that depends on uh, uh, people visiting to, to see the rhino. It depends on creating jobs for the people around the parks so that they can not only police the park, but also benefit from the, again, the, the maintenance of the land so that the water that, that, is, that rain that falls is held by the land, which is still there and not paved over. And so the rhino bond uh, tries to quantify the benefits that are reaped by, uh, uh, say, South Africa, and in that case, in that case, um, and upfront those benefits, raise cash in the capital market to pay in advance for additional policing of the park or additional training of of park rangers, especially post COVID, when the budgets for national yeah. park preservation were decimated. Um, so this is a bond that will be paid back by private investors uh, with a premium if 
there is success in maintaining. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, because not everyone will have heard the Roger Ballen uh, interview. It was a good one with the, he's one of the world's leading photographers. He has a new exhibit out about uh, Hunter's decimation of African wildlife. Uh, so that's the reference to the white rhino. So in that sense, Paula, and excuse the slightly absurd nature of this question, <laughs> could we, I mean, let's say we wanted to quantify the elimination of mosquitoes, which don't seem to have much economic value. If anything, by eliminating them, it would probably benefit, I certainly would benefit us and maybe other species. How, how, would, how, how would we be able to quantify getting rid of, of, of mosquitoes or flies or some other annoying insect? Well, I mean, what's annoying to us is not annoying to the next, uh, asp next element in the, in the, um, in the uh, environment. I mean, I'm not a tree hugger, you know, as I said, I, I was born and, and raised in New York City, but I have come to learn that there's really nothing in nature and the environment that doesn't have a function of some kind. And, and a so, function for you then is a market function. You see all of nature as a huge economic market or certainly a market that can, we can quantify each piece in it. Is that fair? Well, it's, yeah, it's not a market that everything needs to be traded in. Um, you know, it's, it it's, can be quantified. That's it, pricing it can prices. Be, exactly. It can be quantified and you can, you can quantify the indirect benefits. You can quantify the direct benefits you can quantify the scarcity. So for example, in a carbon market, which is very controversial, I know, but think about it, the atmosphere between you and me and disaster is only 60 miles. And we've been using this penthouse, what I call a cosmic penthouse for the last hundred years, doing nothing but dumping dirty diapers in it. And imagine if you were given the the, uh, the freehold for the rest of your life to the most beautiful penthouse in, in the world. And that's what you did. You stored your dirty laundry there. You know, that's what we're doing. That's how low in the totem pole of value we have um, been treating. Uh, that's how low, lowly we see the atmosphere and our market values. So by pricing the scarcity there, saying, look, supply is reduced and demand is climbing because we're not exactly reducing our pollution. So the price of occupancy should be higher. And in theory, the, the higher the price of occupancy, rent, if you will, which I know some people, that word would be anathema to some people, the idea that we're paying a rent to use the atmosphere. But in 1992, a very smart Brazilian activist declared, why doesn't the North, why don't the Northern countries just rent the Amazon from us if we're sequestering all this carbon and contributing to uh, mitigation of climate change? Why doesn't somebody just pay us to keep the trees standing and we'll use the money for our people? You know, that's what I mean by paying nature. And, and, you know, if you go to what just finished in Paris, the uh, Paris, uh, you know, this climate finance uh, conference where the North or the developed countries were giving, quote, special drawing rights to the developing countries so that they could borrow more money at a better rates to, to address climate change. In fact, I would argue it should be reversed. We are the debtors and they are the creditors because they are sequestering the carbon in the trees that we would prefer they not cut down without any remuneration. And I don't think that's realistic. So it does require, in terms of this metric that you're uh, offering, it's a very radical idea. Um, it does suggest that we think of ourselves in the long term rather than the short term. Because for some people, they might say, well, I don't care in the long term about the destruction of the oceans or of the forests. I'm not going to be alive. 
and I'm not going to have any, I'm not, I don't have any children. So why should I care? Well, you know, if people think of that, I mean, the civil, you know, civilization is held together by the opposite view. So people who really discard the future probably don't care much about civilization. I'm not sure if we should, you know, what is that expression of solve for them? Um, you know, but long term and short term also gets a bit confused. I mean, for example, in finance, you have the quarterly say the quarterly call where investors are harassed by uh, rather corp corporations are you know questioned by their investors every three months, every, every yeah every three months about earnings and climate change doesn't really come up on those calls. But then five years, well, five years is the, the tenure of a CEO more or less. So what can be done within those five years? Is that CEO not going to think? Uh, at least a five-year time frame. But that came up in Brazil, for example. You mentioned the Amazon rainforest with Bolsonaro, who basically made the argument that he's not particularly concerned with the long term and that he's in favor of destroying the Amazon rainforest because it will benefit him economically. How would you respond to that? Well, he, you know, I would argue is an outlier of the worst kind. And in fact, thanks to him and his policies, the Amazon has experienced tremendous increase in the deforestation rates. But I think other than that, if he were well-meaning in some way, you know, you could argue that, well, in fact, the trees are worth more standing because the carbon price is saying that trees could be worth as much as $80 a ton in terms of their sequestration value and, and having them standing and uh, sequestering that carbon is a better value, more money in the pockets of the Brazilian treasury than uh, selling, down, selling the trees, certainly cutting them down for, you know, uh, uh, shopping malls and, um, you know, take coral reefs. I mean, look at the logic of this. Um, coral reefs protect the coast from storms, among other things, and nurse, you know, all many fish nurse, you know, fisheries develop in the, in the nooks and crannies of the coral reef. So the coral reef has no value in, in anybody's books, but coastal property is very highly valued. Figure that out. You know, we have to transfer some value to the coral reef so that there, we treat them as assets rather than as cost centers. So infrastructure, coral reef is as important as infrastructure as a bridge. Bridges you have to maintain, coral reefs, whatever happens, happens. That makes uh, sense. You, 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 you've mentioned carbon a few times. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing at CDP and whether that offers an early model for this quantification of, of the environment. What exactly is the CDP? So CDP is a great little invention. Uh, dates about 20 years ago, four people got together in London and their insight was, you know, if investors are supposed to report, uh, rather, if public companies are supposed to report to their investors on their behavior and performance economically, why not ask them about their environmental performance? Why should their environmental performance be separate from their economic reporting? And at that time, securities regulators didn't really ask any questions about environmental performance. And of course, now, 25 years later or so, they, that's a very central pillar of, of um, questions that, that uh, shareholders want to know about. And the degree to which uh, the, the, that disclosure is mandatory varies from country to country. But so, for example, CDP does ask questions about of public companies, many thousands of them, um, does the corporate financial planning include a uh, projection of risk from climate change? So that would mean risk of flooding, risk of supply chain disruption, 
risk of uh, carbon price uh, being applied to their emissions. And so the CDP helps companies quantify tangible risks that, that they experience right now or intangible ones they may experience. So to that extent, they're very central to concepts of pricing the priceless. And also there is, we could go on in, into acronyms all day, but there is something uh, emerging called the Task Force for Nature-Related Disclosure, the TNFD. And that is going to require companies precisely to look into how their operations affect uh, in, indirectly things that they don't actually uh, do business in. So generally biodiversity, generally water pro uh, quality, generally um, uh, uh, availability of deforestation. Uh, so, uh, uh, so uh, let's take a, a tech company, for example, Facebook or Google. They're enormously profitable companies. What you're suggesting is in terms of their profit and loss statements, they need to include the impact of their giant server farms, for example, on the environment. Is that the, the thing? Yeah, that bingo, you're a smart guy. I mean, in the book, I talk about it. I don't know if you if you know know a fellow named Jochen Zeitz, Z-E-I-T-Z. He, among other things, endowed a museum of contemporary art in, in, in uh, Cape Town. But he used to be the CEO of Puma. And he actually did an environmental P&L for Puma. And he instructed his accounting team to look at all the costs to nature of their business, all the shoes, everything they made, the sportswear, and, and figure out what they would have had to pay if they had had to pay either a tax or a remuneration or a mitigation cost. And uh, before they applied those um, costs, their, their revenue, uh, they, were, they showed a revenue of 202, I think it was. Uh, euros in profit. And um, that was significantly cut down. Uh, 145 euro was the cost of their uh, environmental uh, activity, their negative profit, if you will. So that was a big chunk. If they had had to pay that, they wouldn't have been as profitable by far as they were able to. Although it does require visionaries like the, the, the Puma guy to, to think in that way. Everyone has to do, uh, do it or otherwise I'm not sure of its value. Uh, when you buy a plane ticket now, um, Paula, in Europe, in, at Lufthansa, for example, or KLM, um, you're offered to, once you buy the ticket, to add in the, the, the carbon cost. It's not presented, though, as an economic argument. It seems to be presented as a moral one. Do you think that that's the right or the wrong way of, of thinking about this stuff when it comes to the consumer side of pricing? So one thing I learned from Cousteau was people protect what they love and not much more. They don't have the time or the money or the emotional cushion. So I think spreading that moral argument too far exhausts people. But I think a moral impulse is where we're all coming from. And yes, it, it's, a, it's an impulse and a, and a propulsion to do, quote, the right thing. But at the end of the day, um, the real problem is airplanes. And you saw what happened in France. They're trying to eliminate flights that, that can be substituted by trains. And, you know, people are fighting against it. But that's an important step forward. And so, so it should be thought of rather than as a kind of moral tip. It should be priced into the ticket. Everyone should pay that 10 or 50% extra if they choose to fly. 
Absolutely. And, you know, that was an idea that was put out and resisted by the airlines. But I mean, I think, first of all, it, it would be somewhat nominal relative to the cost of an average airplane ticket. People wouldn't really miss it. Look, the airlines are charging us $75 to carry a bag. I don't know how they get away with that. So, yeah, we, you know, if we're going to pay that for a bag, we'd be, we should be willing to pay the emissions fee as a matter of, uh, of uh, requirement. So should this, also, should this also work in terms of what we buy in the supermarket, for example, uh, well, coffee been- or tea? I mean, that's already some people are trying to introduce, if you like, a moral price, but not an economic price in terms of the environment. Well, you're also, you know, seeing that happen and that could also backfire because then you you kind of end up in the lifestyle police. But just just as the way you see the ingredients, which are, you know, nutritional ingredients, you could translate those nutritional ingredients and say it costs the company X dollars to get that calcium or that sugar into whatever it is you're buying. So, you know, what we, we could actually break down the costs, environmental costs, and put them on the on the um, on the product and people could either kick in extra for the, for, to cover that again, back to the moral argument or the price of the item goes up and it inevitably, inevitably, uh, Andrew, prices will rise if we price in all these costs and not only the costs, but the future risks. So this is not a Pollyanna, uh, no cost situation. However, if we don't allow prices to rise, we get what we have, which is depreciation of the, of nature and and you know estimates of the value the economic contribution of value you know the world economic forum said 44 trillion a year bob costanza said who was an environmental econo- economist a pioneer 125 trillion a year whether it's in between those numbers that's a huge amount of subsidy that we're, the economy's getting that nobody's seeing or booking and one day it's going to be gone and it may not be 100 years from now it may be 10 I mean, it's all very well for you in your living in the Upper East Side in New York or for me in San Francisco paying these extra prices. But what about for the world's poor in and out of America? Why so should what, why should people, particularly in the developing nation, have to pay for our mistakes? Well, I, you know, I precisely put my finger on that in the book, in the chapter off limits. First of all, I think you, you could means test this. This is a big deal. This is not something you can do scattershot. These are very institutional systemic changes that have to happen. And you could exempt people below a certain income from any kind of uh, uh, increase in prices of, of, of certain commodities. You could just do that by by law. One. Two. In developing countries, take the Congo, they're getting all kinds of pressure to not cut down their rainforest because not only are the trees there, but then there's this incredible layer of peat. Now, peat is just a gigantic storage of carbon for hundreds of thousands of years. could be gone in, in, in a couple of months if we start burning it. In the, in. So what are the people in the Congo supposed to do? They're, they're supposed to do nothing? No, we should pay them back to paying nature, pay them reverse the debt so these countries are no longer in debt but rather are being paid for what they forego and then you monitor the 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 pathway of that money and people say well if you transfer cash directly to certain governments it'll just be stolen and corrupt number one that's racist and number two you monitor just the way you monitor everything it is corruption everywhere look at cryptocurrency so a lot of this has to happen politically and 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 you know as well as i do that particularly in a country like America, suffering one kind of political gridlock or or another, this is extremely unlikely. 
Well, you know, you kind of have to dance with the ones who brought you. And there's, I think, a, a significant uh, early adopter mentality still. You, there's a lot of pent up money, um, you know, money looking for places to go. In the book, there's some very interesting investments, uh, foreign f- forest resilience bonds, coral reef insurance, people who are in the vanguard who can put their money into these new tools that try to price the benefits of, of nature up front. And, you know, pull the train, pull the train. You need regulation. You need the politics. But the other thing is, it almost doesn't matter what party you're in. And there's nutcases in every party. But it, you, 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 there's an upside for everybody. Texas, you know, there's tremendous jobs creation going on in renewable energies. Yet they would never vote. The, the Texas legislation would never, legislature and the senators uh, would never vote for a national carbon price. Never. But in their own state, there's a lot of jobs benefit going to renewable energy. If they would push for a carbon price, they'd have more jobs being created. But that connection is just not made. So with politics isn't going to make these connections. Doers have to make that connection and just do. And what about valuing or measuring capitalism? One of the points in the book is to suggest that uh, we can measure economic process now by reimagining the very purpose of capitalism can you are you suggesting we can quantify the value of capitalism versus the value of socialism or market socialism well i don't know about valuing capitalism per se but you know the gdp of the world is, a, is an indicator if, if you want to look at it that way that's what is transacted every day minus not including the value of nature um and you know we also did the experiment with socialism so capitalism is here and there's trillions of dollars going in the wrong direction for extraction, exploitation, uh, underpricing, undervaluing, cutting labor, all kinds of things that most people understand are unlikable. They don't like them. They don't like the way the world is going and certainly the way the financial markets are going. But if there's an alternative, this, what is it called? You know, people talk all the time, shareholder capitalism, enlightened capitalism. There's many adjectives being put in front of the word capitalism. And as long as, you know, it's here and capital is the medium of exchange, we should trans- make sure that it's flowing more to, quote, good things than bad things. Uh, Paula, though, won't people use this to justify again ultimately this isn't an economic issue it's a it's it's a values issue right so that's why you know i i take your point on pricing the priceless but ultimately we can't i, I mean you're using the metrics of economics of quantifiable economics to get beyond economics you want to get us to a, a post capitalist world using the algorithms of capitalism. Is that fair or am I missing something? No, I think that's perfectly fair. And I think, uh, uh, you know, you saw what was coming with the internet in in your book, The Cult of the Amateur, which I read practically the day I heard about it. And, um, you know, there are certain outlandish ideas that some people like to put forward and, 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 and I'm trying to do that. I'm not saying it's outlandish. I believe entirely in it, but Yes, that is the point. The point is to take the system and redefine it, flip it, turn it upside down. Do we need new language to describe this? Perhaps is that the, uh, are we going to need some new words and concepts? Possibly, possibly. You know, uh, the word value is, you know, to some extent in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, we've done, it's not that we don't know how to do this. 
you know, we do value things that have ambiguous uh, metrics, such as art. You know, there's all kinds of uh, de debate about, it. you know, people say it's in the eye of the beholder, but in the end, you either buy the painting or you don't, or the museum owns it or it doesn't. You know, we have experience. We, we do value research and development. We value IP, intellectual property, which is entirely intangible. So we do have a way of pricing intangibles using the language of price. And maybe it's literally dollars and cents, which is the less debatable. Uh, but, yeah, thinking about the, you know, everyone has their own aesthetic metrics, I guess, for determining the price of modern art. In terms of determining whether or not you should allow, I don't know, Miami to be swept away or some other small town in another continent, Miami will always win in terms of being saved because of the, the power, the might of its economy. So in a way, aren't you by using this metrics, aren't you maintaining the old system? Well, I mean, in the sense of Miami, I mean, one way to save it would be actually to not allow it to be washed away or f you can't buy flood insurance in Miami now and you, you won't be able to buy um, fire or uh, a, a fire insurance for property and homes in California where you live very soon. You know all about that. Yeah, so, I don't think we can now. I think they've done away with yeah. So at the end, it isn't so much about maintaining the political power of a place like Miami. It's maintaining the values, the value of property in a place like uh, Miami and, 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 and using, in a sense, even public dollars to, to, to um, assure the protection of the very thing that keeps the city viable. And, you know, the, the flooding of Miami is, is, is not new. And obviously the wildfires in California, the ones in, in Canada, these are tragedies, not only uh, for the forest, but for all the people who depend on the forests for, for work and also water retention, again, back to the benefits. And um, what will happen to the economies as we know them in the next few years, if these natural resource bases are, are not considered uh, as important as any other infrastructure. How so do you price in, Paula, the technology of the future here? You, you know, the subtitle of your book is uh, Valuing the Planet, Solve the Climate Crisis and Protect Our Most Precious Assets. But we've had a lot of people on the show suggesting that there are new technologies and there are technologies, so to speak, in the pipeline that will fix a lot of the environmental stuff. Yeah, well, the pipeline is uh, got to be shorter and quicker because, um, you know, the absurd thing is we've spent the last hundred years putting uh, these emissions, digging stuff out of the ground, burning it, putting the emissions up. And now we may have to spend the next hundred years pulling in the very same emissions out of the atmosphere, putting them back underground, whether people want to turn it into what they're now calling bio oil, which is a you know, kind of a crazy scenario, but there are possibly solutions, but a hundred years we don't have, we have a handful of years. And the way to advance those, those solutions is to get capital to them sooner rather than later. And that's partly what I'm trying to do is accelerate this whole idea. You can even create a new currency. To right. express right. It's, 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 it's big thinking. It's very controversial, but very interesting. You certainly make an excellent case, Paula. The new book is Pricing the Priceless, the Financial Transformation to Value the Planet, Solve the Climate Crisis, and Protect Our Most Precious Assets. You make the argument coherently, telling your own story. It's an important new book, and you, you certainly have a, a very compelling voice. Finally, a lot of people are going to be watching and listening and thinking, well, maybe there's something in it, but how do we begin this? So for ordinary people who don't have your 
financial knowledge or resources or network? How would people begin to price the priceless? How can we price the priceless in our everyday lives, Paula? Hmm. Yeah. So the first thing, I mean, is where you and how you spend your money, you know, what money you do spend, be thoughtful about where and why you're spending it in a given place, what you're getting from for the money, you know, what are we actually getting for the price we spend? And then the next level is where do you bank? You know, where is your daily transaction? Is it, it may be Alipay or wallet or all these other, you know, things. Um, by the way, the internet's a pretty big user of energy. So maybe those digital things aren't always the best, but what does your bank do? What is your bank doing with your savings and investing? Where is it lending? Why is it lending to this or, or versus that? And then if you do have resources, uh, private wealth, again, where is it being invested and why? And then taxpayer dollars. We often forget that our taxpayer dollars are investments. And, you know, that's where you vote, not only vote electorally, but vote with with your choice of candidates that you work for, people that you believe in, because there's tons of money in public budgets and it's not being directed to creating natural capital assets. It's 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 being um, scrutinized for every dollar to be saved. And this is, again, a flip. So I think if you start with your own, you know, wallet and checkbook and then possibly investments and, and direction of your taxes, that goes a long way. And if you're lucky to have real wealth or access to people with real wealth or people who manage real wealth, I would just keep lobbying them to shift the way they look at things and think about some of these other ideas.